You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today, we're continuing our discussion with Dr. Scott Boomer on sort of contemporary aspects of adaptive harvest management and, and other other items related in general to uh, how harvest management for duck species occurs. So, uh, Scott, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. When we concluded the previous episode, we had uh, we had talked about sort of the what all goes into uh, into some of the debates about new harvest ideas, new harvest regulations, and how science plays an important role in those discussions. And so, to to start with here today, I want to focus on a question that is often of particular interest. It's, it's reflected in some of our harvest regulations, and those are sex-specific regulations. Hunters will know that there are, um, well, the mallard is probably the most notable example of a species for which uh, over a number of years we have had sex-specific restrictions. Uh, all if you if you go back far enough, you will find uh, find times when we had sex specific restrictions for a few other species, pintails being an example during the point system. But uh, but we get a question often about uh, what's the effect of harvesting, what's the the population level effect of harvesting hens? And we spoke about this briefly with Jim Dubovsky. He shared some of his thoughts on it and what what we know relative to. You know the, the science behind this. Is it is it harmful for us to be harvesting hens out of the population? What is the what does our scientific understanding tell us? So I guess I want to start with, just start there with you, Scott. Uh, what what type of additional insight can you provide regarding our understanding of how female harvest affects the population dynamics of ducks? In general, you know we we rely on our ability to estimate some of the key demographic parameters for these po- at the population level. And, um, and as you noted, you know, there are regulations associated with um, sex specificity, particularly, you know, with regards to hen mallards. Um, and, and your, you know, to answer your question about the impacts of harvest on females, it, it sort of speaks to some of the uncertainty that, that Jim Nichols was describing, you know, depending upon, the relationship between harvest mortality and annual survival, you know, you can answer that a couple different ways. Um, I mean, I think beyond a threshold, you know, female mortality is going to negatively affect waterfowl populations. It's in the determination of what that threshold is. Um, that's, that's where the complicated part comes in and is, is um, often hard to do. Um, I will add that, you know, our, in our AHM frameworks, we attempt to model, let's say, the compensatory mortality relationship 
And so we account for um, the harvest mortality um, in the prediction of popul subsequent population sizes um, explicitly for females. And so our analytical frameworks are um, representing this relationship. And I would argue our optimization frameworks are providing direction as to what a sustainable harvest level would be for, um, you know, for females, or at least the way we represent that harvest mortality. And so, you know, the resulting harvest policies that we're relying on to inform regulatory decisions are accounting for the uncertainty in our ability to represent this relationship. Scott, is it fair to say that if female harvest at the levels it's currently occurring, whether we're talking about mallards or any other species for which we can estimate that sex-specific uh, harvest rate, that, that would be an, a very important part of determining uh, its effect is being able to measure the harvest that is occurring on these different, you know, sort of sex-specific stocks. And that's going to come from banding data. Uh, and of course, we all know that uh, we there are some species for which we don't have robust banding data. But let's just assume that we did for a lot of these species. If and maybe specifically for those species for which we do have good banding data at the sex-specific level, if harvest of hens at the level it is occurring right now was detrimental to a population, would we be able to pick that up in some of our analytics? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, we definitely have the ability to estimate female harvest rates for some stocks, and we can also estimate survival rates for for some of these stocks. And so, you know, if there was a deleterious impact, um, it would come through in, at least in the HM frameworks, in terms of the support for a particular model. And let's say, you know, that the, the harvest impact was additive, you know, we would expect the weight on that model to increase. So, yeah, I mean, I think we would be able to pick that up. What would probably happen is that the policy would respond to those impacts um, as the harvest rates increased. Um, and, you know, we would, the, the direction that we would get in terms of the types of regulations that would be optimal would account for that increased mortality. Well, your response there clarifies that it's it's complicated, but but yeah, I, 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 I apologize for that. No, no, I, I think that's part of the point is that you know, I think it's important for people to realize that harvest management and our ability to kind of differentiate the effect of these different components of harvest is is sometimes challenging. Um, fortunately, we have smart people like you and all the others that, that participate in the harvest management process and technical review of all of our harvest management um, uh, regulations to keep an eye on these things and and to make use of the to make the best use of the data that we do have available. Moving on here a bit, Scott, but still related to this issue is in terms of sex specific uh, regulations. One of the uh, one of the justifications that we often hear for a more liberal limit on on drakes than hens is that there's a there's some evidence if you look back through some of the literature that that these populations are are male biased certainly at at, at some times of the year. Um, what do we know about 
what is the what are the data from some of the data that you that you all are looking at tell us with regard to those sex ratios of male to female and you know I'll use pintails as as an example here that's the one that that I've heard here recently a lot of discussion about in terms of these the number of drakes vastly outnumbering hens on the pintail side and that kind of being used as as as, as, as a discussion point behind, hey, why can't we shoot more drakes than, uh, than, than hens? What do we know about those sex ratios as measured from data relative to what may be observed in the field? And this gets back to the importance of using, in my mind, using rigorous science to, uh, as the basis for some of our decisions. Do you have any insight on what, what the data are telling us with regard to some of these sex ratios? I, I think you're correct in that you know, we don't really have an estimate of sex ratio directly from our, you know, monitoring programs. For example, you know, in midwinter counts, we're not um, collecting information on the number of males versus number of females. So we can't necessarily directly observe it. Um, However, you know, we tend to estimate sex ratios as sort of a derived parameter um, in our population models. Based on the schedules of births and deaths, we can um, we can make some assumptions and come up with estimates of what the, the sex ratio is. Let's say each spring, um, and you know, interestingly, we're we're piecing some of this stuff together with more, some of the more recent pintail information and our most recent estimates from the the estimation frameworks that we've developed based on some of the modeling work. Um, doesn't really suggest that the overall sex ratio is that skewed. Um, now, granted, these are preliminary results, um, and we're we're piecing together a lot of data sets in the common estimation framework. So there's undoubtedly some variation that we're not accounting for, but um, it's it's something we're considering. That's interesting, and I'll just say I look forward to seeing how all those results come out. Um, so thank you for wading into that discussion. I know it's a uh, it, it's a common conversation that a lot of us hear, and so I appreciate your insights on that. I want to move now to just a discussion about the intended role of harvest regulations and whether you whether you find that there is any level of confusion, maybe among our, our hunter constituency, not necessarily among our professionals, but among our hunter constituencies on the proper role or intended role of harvest regulations. Is there is there a misconception perhaps that harvest rich restrictions during one year should be expected to produce a population increase in the following year? Do you hear that at all or have conversations about that in terms of potential misinterpretation or misconception of the role of harvest? Yeah, it's a question that we respond to quite often. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I hearken back to some of the things that um, Jim Nichols was talking about relative to the decision frameworks that we've developed for AHM purposes. And, and in general, it speaks to objectives. Um, and, um, you know, I would say for the bulk of our AHM frameworks, we seek to determine the harvest levels consistent with the long-term conservation of the population. Um, most of our harvest management objectives include this, you know, to, to maximize long-term cumulative harvest. And in general, you know, we don't have an explicit population growth objective, but we expect that over the long term, the strategy is going to find the population size required to maximize that harvest opportunity. So it's something inherent within the dynamics that we're representing through our modeling frameworks that sort of determines um, the population sizes that are going to 
um, allow us to maximize our harvest opportunity. Related to this, Scott, I want to get your kind of personal opinion on how you would answer this question. You know, what, what do you think is the relative role of harvest regulations versus uh, habitat, uh, habitat quantity and habitat quality in determining population growth? Um, well, there's, you know, there's no question they're related. And, you know, I always tend to think that the, the harvest management, I mean, the, the habitat managers are really setting the table right? That they're providing the, the resources required for that population <clears throat> to, to, you know, achieve a certain level of production and population size. And then as a harvest manager, it's our job to determine what the appropriate um, harvest rates should be in relation to our objectives for harvest management and in relation to what the productive capacity of that population is that's being driven by the habitat conditions and the, and the habitat availability. So, Scott, related to the habitat component of this discussion, we we all know that that eventually in the prairies of the U.S. and Canada, we we will eventually be faced with a, a rather severe drought. We've had 25 years of liberal regulations under adaptive harvest management, at least for the mid-continent population of mallards. And someday that will change. And it's likely going to occur whenever we have a, uh, a severe drought or a couple of years of severe drought strung together. Do you think do you think that's going to give us an opportunity to learn a disproportionately greater amount relative to waterfowl population dynamics and the interaction with harvest than, let's say, what we've been experiencing over the past 25 years? Absolutely. I think from the reproductive side of the equation, yeah. If, if we experience prolonged dry conditions, we'll learn more about the interaction between habitat conditions and density dependence at a, a pretty large scale. As we discussed, the the reproductive output, you know, that we've been experiencing for the last 25 years has been driven by primarily good wetland conditions. And so the weak density dependent model has gained a lot of um, support. We have yet to experience dry conditions. So it'd be interesting to see if that density relationship holds. That's sort of how, you know, learning will manifest itself through AHM. Um, we may also learn more about the role of harvest mortality and duck population dynamics, but this may be complicated or confounded um, if our decision-making results in a regulatory change. Um, and so I agree that, you know, we'll have an opportunity to learn how harvest rates and hunter participation are going to respond to restrictive regulations. It'd be really interesting to, to think about how, um, you know, hunter effort might change with, um, um, declining habitat conditions and potentially maybe regulatory change. Yeah, that's. I would probably agree with that, certainly on the hunter side of things. And uh, that's going to be interesting whenever we get to that point, because we have an entire generation of hunters that has experienced nothing but uh, liberal regulations, at least regarding uh, mid-continent mallards uh, and probably Western mallards too. Have they gone into anything other than liberal since, that, since Western mallard AHM has come about? Uh, I don't believe there's been any regulatory changes for the Western Mallard AHM framework. Yeah, so definitely going to be interesting um, to to see how that unfolds and look forward to learning along with everyone else. I, I said I said at the end of the previous episode on today we're gonna on this one we're going to talk a bit about pintails. Uh, that's a obviously it's a species that is a favorite of many people for many different reasons, and they are a species that certainly is not not without some debate and consternation within the harvest management realm of things. And so we had a recent Ducks Unlimited Magazine article 
where we spoke about pintail populations, some of what's affecting, uh, affecting them on the habitat side of things and some of the conservation work that's occurring. But we also took an opportunity in that article to talk about some of the ongoing work with regard to, you know, a, a revision, a revisitation of the harvest strategy around pintails. So I wanted to use this, this time to talk a bit about that, maybe as an example for people to see what kind of goes into these periodic revisitations or reevaluations of harvest regulatory strategies around a given species. So can you elaborate a bit on how that is, un is unfolding? Uh, the, the, obviously, the harvest management working group is going to be key in this discussion. But yeah, just give people some insight on what goes into these periodic reevaluations of a harvest management strategy. It's interesting to step back and sort of say how we got here with regards to the pintail situation. The harvest strategy for pintails has evolved over time. We have been using an AHM framework for pintails. And in order to establish that initial decision framework, we had to go through the same types of stages or um, develop the same elements that, that Jim Nichols talked about with regards to mid-continent Miller AHM, where we developed a model to make predictions of how pintails will respond to um, harvest regulations. And, and then, you know, we had deliberations about appropriate harvest management objectives and the suite of regulatory packages that we would consider. And then what we end up doing is in working closely with the tech section reps from the flyways and the um, representatives from the service, we end up using an assessment framework that represents population and harvest dynamics and accounts for different forms of uncertainty to represent the system. And so we'll simulate under a number of different objectives or di different types of regulatory alternatives and um, summarize the important metrics that harvest managers care about, the relative population sizes, average harvest levels that you would expect for a particular strategy, and then more importantly, what a lot of folks are interested in is the, the, the number of times you would expect to be in a liberal versus a restrictive versus a moderate type of package. And so we performed a whole suite of those types of um, exercises and worked across all four flyways to really determine what's the appropriate set of objectives and alternatives that make up the current Pintail AHM framework that we're operating under today. Um, We've been operational with that framework um, for, I think, since at least 2010. And um, there has been um, a call to revise some of that framework um, in response to some new information and in, in response to a desire to reconsider some of the alternatives and maybe that, you know, the revisiting the objectives for pintail harvest management. And so um, really spearheaded by the the Pacific Flyway, where we've, we've gone into sort of the double loop phase for, for pintails, the double loop learning phase of pintail AHM. And we've been working closely with the um, advisory group from that has um, folks from all four flyways and um, members of the Fish and Wildlife Service, as well as researchers from USGS. And we've been going through um, and revisiting objectives, alternatives, and the models and the data that we have available for pintails to... to re you and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. 
Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Devise that harvest strategy. Scott, I want to dig into the objectives here. Well, maybe not, maybe dig in isn't the right word, but I want to, I want to give people an illustration of how the, what these objectives look like. We've talked a lot about objectives. You mentioned earlier that with regard to adaptive harvest management for mid-continent mallard, the original objective was as simple as, at least I think this was just the the simple articulation was, it was to maximize long-term cumulative harvest. And but but we've since kind of grown in the way we think about objectives around harvest, if I'm interpreting things correctly. And for the pintail harvest strategy, we have actually a series of objectives, if I remember correctly. Do you have those handy just to kind of give people an idea of what we mean when we talk about what our harvest objectives are? It's not just as simple as we want to maximize long-term cumulative harvest of pintails. We've kind of gone beyond that and become a bit more explicit to include multiple objectives that we're trying to achieve through our harvest uh, alternative, our, our harvest uh, regulations. What is interesting, and you're, you're right to point out that, you know, we have an overall objective, let's say, of maximizing long-term cumulative harvest. And, you know, that is a, a long-winded way of saying that, you know, we want to maximize hunting opportunity um, over the long term. And it really also speaks to some um, additional objectives. So we really are dealing with multiple objectives in that one statement. So for example, you know, we've already talked about how long-term cumulative harvest incorporates a conservation objective because we need to carry that population forward in time to accrue the benefits that we're gonna expect in the future. Um, in addition, you know, we're providing hunter opportunity. Um, the, for, for example, it was pointed out, I think, in deliberations for the Pintail AHM framework that we're operating under right now, that we want to minimize regulatory burden on the public with the set of the limited set of regulatory alternatives that we're considering. We're encouraging hunter participation, and there's, you know, also um, an expectation that we're providing for other non-consumptive uses. So these are sort of means objectives that fall under this blanket fundamental objective of maximizing long-term cumulative harvest. And I think that's a that's a consistent theme within the bulk of the, the harvest strategies that we, we derive in our AHM frameworks. So you have, we do have one objective, but embedded in that are some other implied objectives. Is that, a, is that accurate? Absolutely, yes. Scott, related to the pintail um, regulation kind of revision of the harvest strategy, and I don't know if you can answer this question realizing that there's a lot of people involved in this, and I'm not going uh, to encourage you to get out in front of anyone because I know all of this is a partnership type deal, but, but is there anything that you can share with our listeners here with regard to where we stand on that harvest management strategy revision? Uh, and of course, I know one of the questions that people would die, would really want me to ask, and again, I don't know if you can answer this, but do you know at this time if there there's any consideration of uh, some, some of the sex-specific restrictions that we would have talked about earlier, maybe more drakes than hens, or or is it, uh, or, or are we not there yet? Yeah, I'm not in a position right now to um, comment on the, the specifics of the regulatory alternatives that are currently, you know, in 
consideration for this revision. I'll just point out that, you know, we have a, um, we've been working with the harvest management community in an effort to revise the Pintel harvest strategy. We've got a great working group together that is considering all these key elements of this decision framework, um, talking about objectives of regulatory options. And there's been a fair amount of technical work involved with, um, event, you know, uh, assessing the available data and developing modeling frameworks to inform pintail harvest regulations. Um, and yeah, I'll just leave it at that. It's a, it's a work very much in progress. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Scott. I know, uh, I, I know some of these, well, the harvest management decisions are a tightly coordinated effort between states and feds. And hey, it's no secret that it's there are topics around which there's a lot of, uh, there are some challenging conversations around. And so I appreciate your willingness to share what you can. I certainly understand that there are some things you can't out of respect for partners and everyone else that's involved in this. And hey, you're not far along in the process in some respects as well. But I just wanted to kind of probe some of those questions and see if we can figure out where we are with regard to some of those uh, pintail harvest management uh, kind of revisitation. So thank you for taking a stab at that. As we kind of move to a close on this episode, it will probably be the, uh, I think we'll wrap up our conversation here with you in a, in a bit. Um, you know, we have harvest managers constantly thinking about evaluating these harvest decisions and alternatives that balance all of these objectives, um, uh, some of which would be notably harvest opportunity and population uh, sustainability. Uh, in recent years, we've th the, these discussions have produced uh, has produced a new multi-stock management approach in the Atlantic Flyway. You referenced that, I think, previously. Experimental hunter's choice options in the Central Flyway, I don't believe those are offered any longer. And soon an experimental two-tier license system in certain parts of the Central Flyway. And we plan to discuss some of those in more detail uh, next year. But, but for now, just a general question and one that we've talked with previously, uh, talked with, talked about previously with Dale, Ken, and Jim Nichols. You know, do you think we'll ever get to a point where we have a greater degree, and I realize that's a, that's, that's a very vague uh, description in itself, but a, a greater long-term stability in regulation to cross species of waterfowl. Uh, we, we can restrict it just to ducks if you want to, or by the very nature of the dynamics of waterfowl populations, uh, the different resource threats that different species and populations face, and then the, 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 the hunter population. Do you think there will always be some necessary adjustment? Do you envision a time where we will have a bit more stability over the long term outside of the adaptive harvest management, uh, which we have, you know, we've looking back, we've had 25 years of liberal regs under mid-continent mallards. Do you think we'll get to a place where we see more of that stability over a larger swath of the, the waterfowl species? That's an interesting question. We've had conversations in the past about some of that expectation of regulatory stability. And you know, even during the revision of the Mid-Continent Mallard AHM framework, I mean, we did discuss objectives about maximizing long-term hunting opportunity while minimizing regulatory changes. But I, on the other hand, I think there's also a re very real concern that we're not going to be able to maintain all of these individual decision frameworks as we move forward with AHM due to the complexity involved with trying to knit them all together in the common suite of regulations especially given the required resources necessary to maintain them. Um, I think what your question is really sort of getting at is, you know, are, are we going to enter a phase of waterfall harvest management that 
we formalize this expectation that we want to minimize regulatory change. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, that's up for debate within the, the flyway councils and within the service, you know, as we, as we continue to update and revise these decision frameworks. Um, I will add that, you know, in general, policies that seek to maximize um, will require regulatory adjustments eventually, especially in dynamic systems like what we're operating with with waterfall. It's just the, the nature of the, the maximization function uh, to maximize an objective function. You're trying to really hone in on um, levels of harvest. Um, and in certain situations, you're going to, you know, you're going to require regulatory changes to do that. So um, unless our objectives change and we don't formally or explicitly acknowledge that we'd like to minimize regulatory change in our objectives, you know, I anticipate that, you know, eventually we're going to have to have some regulatory changes um, in the future. Scott, perhaps a final question here related to what we just talked about before we kind of move on to close. This idea of regulatory complexity and knowing when new ideas are worth pursuing, you uh, the complexity and the, the trade-offs involved in that relative to the reward that it gives to our hunters and, and ensuring population sustainability, is, is that one of the greatest challenges in your job and of all harvest managers that, that you could think of, you know, in terms of knowing when those regulatory ideas are worth pursuing? Yes, absolutely. I think um, where as a harvest managed community, we are struggling with how to, um, to implement and maintain these frameworks across the, all four flyways and develop um, good, robust methods to, you know, inform regulatory decisions. Uh, I think the, you're, you're absolutely right in that it, we're challenged to provide um, uh, within our decision-making community, you know, we're, we're challenged to provide those decision-makers with answers to those questions to say, hey, can we optimize across these two different frameworks? And if so, you know, how much bang for the buck should we expect? Um, we spend a fair amount of time trying to wrestle with those types of questions. And ultimately, you know, we have to, to rely on the available information that we have, but also um, the close work within the flyway councils and in the tech um, committee representatives to, to answer questions about objectives and um, other policy-related elements that really drive the frameworks that we use to, to answer those questions. Um, that's a rather long-winded way of saying that it is a challenge, but yes, um, that complexity is something that is um, something that we're having to contend with more and more. I figured that might have been the case, and it's not unrelated to the topic that we occasionally revisit here that we come back to, and that is with when Dale and Ken uh, noted that waterfowl harvest managers have never been short on creative ideas. If harvest managers themselves ever run out of ideas of alternative regulatory uh, options or possibilities, I think all we need to do is go sit in the duck blind for a few days and there will be no shortage of new ideas <laughs> that come up. But I just wanted to get some perspective, uh, get some thoughts from you on you know, what, yeah, what goes into considering those new ideas as they come up. And so it's definitely uh, a lot goes into it and a lot uh, has to be in place before we can actually pursue those. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, Scott, uh, I think that covers all of the harvest management discussion that, that I, that I had for you. I'm going to give you an opportunity here in closing to cover anything else that you wanted to. But before I do that, I wanted to ask you about 
something that uh, that I, I know will be on the minds of all waterfowl hunters and waterfowl managers here shortly. And, and I don't know if you have an answer for this right now. Again, recognize the the sensitivity of a lot of these things are, are partnership driven. And if you if you don't have an answer for it or don't feel comfortable providing an answer, that's fine. But do you have any insight on where we stand relative to planning for the, uh, the the 2021 May breeding population and habitat survey? Obviously, last year we were not able to conduct that survey. Steve Quartz told us the other day when we interviewed him that he he was not certain if his state was going to be able to uh, to do their survey the way they normally do because of some pandemic related restrictions that remain in his state. Do you have anything that you can offer from the Fish and Wildlife Service perspective with with regard to where we stand on planning and thoughts about whether we're going to be able to conduct the survey this year? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I can speak to is that I know that the Branch of Migratory Bird Surveys is um, working very hard to to plan for any contingencies that might happen um, this spring. And and ultimately, you know, the service leadership is going to be making those decisions with regards to the health and safety of all involved um, as what well, you know throughout the waterfowl you know management community and our partners um in canada and the united states so so not a definitive yes not a definitive no that's about all we can uh, can hope for at this point and and I, I certainly realize it doesn't take too much imagination to realize that there remain some challenges and we yeah just personally and, and i know i speak for for all waterfowl uh, waterfowl constituents, we hope we're able to find a way to, to gather that data, but we also understand the limitations that we're all facing right now. So thanks for taking a stab at that. Uh, with, with that, Scott, I want to give you an opportunity here to make any final remarks. You, Your position, the work you do has a direct influence on the activities of waterfowl hunters across, uh, across the United States. Uh, that work also ensures waterfowl populations are in stain for uh, in perpetuity for all people to enjoy. And so you have a direct connection, not just to hunters, but to all people that care about the waterfowl resource. And actually your job, I think, probably carries you beyond just waterfowl, maybe other migratory bird concerns uh, occasionally. But so because of that, I wanted to give you an opp- opportunity to share anything else that you'd like to, whether related to adaptive harvest management, waterfowl harvest management in general, or anything else related to the management of migratory birds. So here's your opportunity to communicate to some of our constituents on anything else that you wanted to. As I said before, I've been really fortunate to work within the harvest management community and benefit from a lot of exceptional work that was put into place by this institution. We, we, you know, our office is truly standing on giants, you know, within the wildlife management field is um, you've had, you know, you've had Jim Nichols on the podcast and, you know, I'm lucky to have colleagues across all four flyways from state and federal agencies, universities and conservation organizations like DU, um, I'm blessed to to work in this environment. These folks are true professionals and extremely dedicated to the resource. I feel privileged to to have an opportunity to work with them in my current position. And, and thanks thanks to you, Mike, for offering up this opportunity to participate in this podcast. I think it's a great resource. It's been my pleasure, Scott. I thank you for your friendship. I thank you for your, for your time joining us here on this on these two episodes. One thing that I'll say to our listeners here at this point: these this episode will wrap up our harvest management series at least for this season. Uh, I sort of a, a bit of a 
sort of personal note, I realized as I started getting into this harvest management series kind of planning process that I might have bitten off more than I could chew uh, with regard to the number of topics and number of people that we wanted to cover. Uh, you know, number one, the harvest management is not in my background. And so I had to do a fair bit of research on this myself. And then the more I got into it, I realized, oh boy, there's a whole bunch of things to cover. And there's a lot of different geographic representation that we need to, that we need to address. And certainly it's no secret to those that have listened thus far that we've with Ken and Dale and a lot of those discussions at the state level, it's been primarily a Mississippi Flyway uh, perspective. We do know that there are some some rather unique conversations relative to the history of harvest management that have occurred in each of the other flyways, as well as some contemporary aspects of harvest management, some of which we've already here discovered, uh, discussed, including multi-stock management that's occurring in the Atlantic Flyway and some other experiments that are occurring in the, in the Central Flyway and, and, and a lot of history in terms of goose, ta- goose harvest management in the Pacific Flyway. I want to get to those topics, but uh, quite frankly, we're just running out of time and running out of steam this season. So this episode here with uh, Dr. Scott Boomer is going to wrap up uh, our, our our episodes on this series for this season. We're going to pick back up probably in the fall with a continuation of this harvest management series, and we'll have a few other topics to, to cover. But, but you can also look forward to the wrap-up show later this season with uh, Chris and me, and we'll kind of highlight some of the other things that are yet to come. But So I just wanted to take this opportunity to close out this uh, these episodes for the harvest management series in season three of the Ducks Unlimited podcast. And Scott, thank you again for being willing to be, uh, to be the one to close us out. So thank you, man. Thanks again for the opportunity. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Scott Boomer, wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Division of Migratory Bird Management. Again, we greatly appreciate his time. As always, we thank Clay Baird for the great work he does on these episodes and getting these out to you. And of course, our listener, we, we couldn't do this, wouldn't do this without you. We appreciate your support. We appreciate your feedback. And we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.